0: Hey, all you creeps, I'm Elle, and this is Murder on the 420 Express. Welcome back to another episode of this crazy train ride we call life. In today's episode, today's the start of our 27 Club. Um, If you guys aren't familiar with the 27 Club, it's pretty much like curse. It's like a curse to all of these really famous and talented individuals that just end up finding themselves dying tragically at the age of 27. So within the 27 Club, we have Jim Morrison, Robert Johnson, um Janis Joplin Jimi Hendrix I'm pretty sure I said Jim Morrison um Mac Miller I don't think he was 27 though 26 he was 26 did not quite make it into the actual 27 club but I feel like that's fucking close enough right it's all of these people at the age of 27 They somehow die tragically. Brian Johnson from the Beach Boys, he also died very tragically. But yeah, that's uh, pretty much the gist of the 27 Club. So we're going to start out today's episode with Kurt Cobain. And the reason why we're going to start out with Kurt Cobain is because his death was really mysterious for me. Um, it really grabbed my attention because there's just a lot of inconsistencies surrounding his death that just, they really don't sit right with you when when you look at him, because you're just like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Why would this and that and this and that just kind of, it's a whirlwind of what the fuck is happening here? type of deal and it's by far one of like it's it's one that like I kind of hold near and dear to my heart because I have a lot of theories and I have a lot of suspicions and it's just something 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 ain't right not here not right now not ever but before we dive into today's episode Um, let's go over some crypt cleaning or crypt keeping. Um, So as of recently, as of last episode, I was telling you guys that um, I signed up or I signed us up for a Patreon. So if there's any exclusive episodes any type of community that we can build um, I'm trying to build that through our TikTok which is murder on the 420 official um I'm trying to kind of cultivate a little bit of a community here and um I think Patreon is like a really great place for that so I signed I'm setting everything up for the Patreon but this past week has been kind of really hectic for me um which you know things happen and it's totally fine Um, But I also got um, the YouTube set up. So if you're watching this on YouTube, hello. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Don't forget to hit the like button. And make sure that you have the bell notification turned on to ring. Because you don't want to miss out on any. You don't want to miss out on anything. We got a really cool um, uh, like TikTok thing going on right now. So that's kind of great and i really love uh com- communicating with you guys and you know sharing some current events that are happening and also just you know talking about the weird the strange the unusual as well as like true crime and um paranormal and conspiracies like i love talking about all of it and i also really love um <laughs> I really love the these smoke sessions because I feel like they're great. It's a great way to like decompress and uh, just kind of get your mind off of things and get yourself into a higher train of thought, like a higher mind, a higher consciousness, a higher perspective. And I really love um, getting on that level with you guys. I think it's great, and I'm trying to cultivate that type of community here, um, wherever. And I can't wait for more of this because I think it's it's going to be great. But um, I think I did it last episode, too, where I was going to be going into cannabis news of the day and of the day, of the moment, <laughs> the hot topic for cannabis and true crime, possibly some paranormal, some weird spooky shit, like just the current... The current events that are happening right now that, you know, you, that would be nice to know about and that I don't really see a lot of people talking about. So going into cannabis, we're going to start there. So as of right now, there are about 50 bills in the House and in the Senate this session that involve the legalization of medical marijuana. So from HB 1734, which would require signage that you understand the risks of consuming cannabis while pregnant in my personal opinion I feel like this is a bit of an overkill because when you go to a dispensary as of right now they are legally required to give you a pamphlet that's with your receipt that states all of the warning signs of consuming cannabis and purchasing cannabis and so on and so forth so They don't require pregnant women to sign anything when purchasing tobacco or alcohol products. Why do we need signage for purchasing cannabis? Fucking overkill. Um, There's also bills like SB 116, which would keep grow houses away from churches. I want everyone to be aware of how fucking ridiculous that sounds. None of these bills are gaining attention like SB 440 is. This bill is proposing a cap on the potency of medical marijuana products. So if this bill gets passed, it would set a limit of how much THC can be in all cannabis products. So the cap itself would be 30% in flour products and 60% for distillates. Um, SB 440 is a bill that is being passed in Oklahoma just in time for SQ 820, which is the legalization of cannabis recreationally in the state of Oklahoma. So the representative bringing SB 440 to the table is representative Jessica Garvin, she is in no way against cannabis at all. Um, in fact, it's, she's, it's far from it. Her father is a physician, and one of his clients um, suffers from cerebral palsy. Um, and that patient uses a CBD and THC products, and she has witnessed firsthand just how amazing, you know, this plant can actually be in support of relief. From chronical illnesses and ailments and things like that. So Garvin is more focused on the long-term side effects of high-dose THC and the effects it can have on the brain. There are other states that are thinking about doing the same thing like Washington, Montana, Massachusetts, and Florida. So in my personal opinion, I THC should be the last thing on your mind when you are purchasing any sort of um, cannabis product, whether that be flour, um, anything like in that nature, right? I wouldn't necessarily look at solves or like topical topical products I I feel like that's kind of in a different range because you're not consuming it but when you're when you're consuming cannabis like I, I do believe that there should be a dosage like we have a dosage of how much milligrams of THC are in edible products when we purchase them like you can't purchase anything that is above 100 milligrams from as far as I can see maybe the highest Um, that I, that I have been able to purchase in my own state as far as recreational goes is like probably 112 milligrams in an edible product. But I haven't seen anything higher than that. So putting a cap um, on the dosage of THC, I don't really see a downside to that because like I said THC should be the like the last thing that you're worried about when you're purchasing cannabis you should really be looking at the terpenes that are really be looking at the terpenes that are in each cannabis strain because those terpenes actually I wouldn't necessarily say dictate but they definitely are a guidance system of how well that strain is going to work for you um they definitely dictate the type of strain that it is so I really feel like it. like I said THC should be like the last thing that you're worried about but I do see where she's going with this and in all honesty until we have more studies out there as far as long-term effects of cannabis users like we don't know what that is like we we are just now hitting A point where we are able to do more research in that department because as of right now we don't have the research we just have it labeled as a schedule one drug like literally go back to the history of cannabis episode that I did like years ago for this podcast and like we go so far in depth with the fact that like yes it is a schedule one drug which means that it has no medicinal purposes but from, from from the daily recreational user to a person who is suffering from like epilepsy like there we see that there are medicinal purposes and properties of this plant so to have it be labeled as a schedule 1 drug you kind of have to wonder why the hell is it labeled as a schedule 1 drug but go back to that episode if you want to know I'll have the link in the description. So, I mean, if other states are wanting to participate in that, great. Awesome. Go for it. I don't, I don't really see a downside to it at all, you know. So, for true crime news of the day um, or of the moment, <laughs> the true crime news that I have for you today, which I thought was fucking wild, okay? Fucking wild. So, earlier this month, 24-year-old Nishali Alma was exercising at her gym apartment complex. Um, So, the gym inside her apartment complex, which they provide, you know, it's like free gym, whatever. When a man approached the door um, looking to be let in. So, she thought, you know, that this was just another person coming in to use the gym who possibly forgot, like, their key card or, you know, they just lost it and were waiting on a replacement. You know, she didn't really think anything of it. So she let the man in, and when she let the man in, he went to go grab her, and she was pushing him off of off of her and, you know, trying to run, trying to escape, trying to call 911. In the video, you can clearly see it. And so um, in her efforts to escape the man that she led into the gym, you know, her efforts they were successful. She was able to get away from him. This is like a gentle reminder you know, it's like to always watch your surroundings, always like be aware of who's actually in your surrounding area you know especially women and I think the majority of women who actually listen to true crime like podcasts or like watch true crime documentaries and stuff like that like that's literally what we do we know the warning signs like we know to what to look out for and we're always very cautious of our surroundings um I know this all too well you know and like In fact, you know, like, when I door dash at night by myself, I'm always on the lookout for anyone or anything that is, like, suspicious. You know, like, not that you guys need to be knowing my business. But uh, Nishali um, was extremely lucky and fought her attacker until she could get away. And she leaves us with a a little bit of advice. Quote, My parents always told me in life never to give up on anything. And that's one thing I always kept in my mind when I was fighting him. As long as you don't give up, you fight back and show him that you are strong, that you are one, that you are able to fight back and get out of the situation, I believe it's possible. So just a little bit of a tad bit reminder of, you know, like always, always keep an eye out on your surroundings because you never fucking know, man, you just never fucking know. But let's get into our strain of the day. Because this is what you're going to want to be smoking on when you listen to this episode. So our strain of the day that we have is going to be Skywalker OG. Y'all know about this strain? So Skywalker OG it literally reminds me of that, uh, is it Miguel called Skywalker? God damn it, I hate when I get these things in my head. But it reminds me of that song, Skywalker. But Skywalker is also known as Skywalker OG Kush. To many members of the cannabis community, it's an indica-dominant hybrid. So 85% indica, 15% sativa strain. That is a potent cross between a hugely popular Skywalker XOG Kush strains. This dank bud boosts with intense THC level ranging from 20 to 25%. So you'll still be able to get this shit if that fucking bill is passed. <laughs> like, like, there's no cap on this, bitch. Uh, a combination of both indica and sativa effects happen with this strain. So Skywalker OG has an aroma of spicy herbal jet fuel. I don't understand how jet fuel can... Ugh, oh, my God. And a taste of spicy diesel and with an herby aftertaste. This bud has medium-sized, dense, round, olive-green nugs with burnt orange, furry, twisty hairs, and rich orange undertones. So these nugs have a fine layer of milky white trichomes and sweet, sticky resin. Users describe Skywalker OG as a very heavy, stony high that leaves you utterly couch-locked relaxed and lethargic with an almost overwhelming case of the munchies. Can you feel it? Can you feel? It? <laughs> uh this is accompanied by a head in the clouds euphoric head high that fades into um a deep and peaceful sleep upon the come down. Due to these potent effects, Skywalker OG is an ideal strain for treating uh, patients suffering from conditions such as chronic stress pain due to injury or illness and mild to moderate cases of depression um, so the effects that you're going to feel overall is like euphoria happy relaxing really sleepy um, it relieve it may relieve arthritis chronic pain depression insomnia Loss of appetite, migraines, muscle spasms, PTSD, sh- stress. Its flavors are very citrus, fruity, piney, spicy, and sweet. And the aromas that you're going to smell from it are going to be like earthy, fruity, again, pungent, spicy, and sweet. <coughs> I say that Skywalker OG is like the perfect one for today because. This, this might, this might slightly put you to sleep, but then it's going to come back and you're going to be like, what did I just hear? And then your mind's going to start going and you're like, totally couch locked, (laughs) just like locked into place of like, oh my God, this is so great. So without further ado, let's get into it. So on today's episode of Murder on the 420 Express, we're going to dabble into the controversial life and death of Kurt Cobain, the legendary frontman of the band Nirvana. Essentially part of the 27 Club series that we're about to be diving into. Where essentially it's, you know, part one of the 27 Club that we're going to be diving into. I already went over this. Why am I going over this again? All right. So... Cobain's death in April of 1994 was ruled a suicide, but there have been persistent rumors and conspiracy theories suggesting foul play. Many fans and investigators believe that there, have been more, there may have been more to his death than what was officially reported. In this episode, we'll examine the evidence surrounding Cobain's death, including the timeline and events leading up to his passing, the suspicious circumstances surrounding the discovery of his body, and the various theories that have emerged over the years. We'll also explore the impact of Cobain's life and music on the world and the endearing legacy of one of rock and roll's most iconic figures. And I say he's iconic whether you want to believe he is or not whether you think his music is shit or not he was very much a iconic figure in rock and roll and music that we that we know of as know of as today that we know of today (laughs) that's what I meant to say So grab your favorite piece, man, and let's get stoned and mind-blown and talk about the tragic life and death of Kurt Cobain. Kurt Douglas Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967 at 7.38 p.m. to Wendy O'Connor and Don Cobain. He was born in Aberdeen, Washington at Grays Harbor Community Hospital. Aberdeen became known as the lumber capital of the world and was home to many large sawmills and logging operations. It did experience a significant influx of immigrants from Scandinavia and Eastern Europe who came to work in the sawmills and logging industry. So this diverse population helped shape the culture and the character of the city that is known as aberdeen today so like this place was (laughs) like this was a place that was happening you know especially after the war and but nowadays aberdeen has been faced with economic challenges due to the decline in the logging industry but that's a topic for another time so wendy had married don who was a local automotive mechanic on July 31st of 1965 in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Wendy is said to have been so excited to become a mother, uh, she always wanted to have babies. And Kurt was the first child born to both Don and Wendy, and he was the first grandchild on both sides, so both paternal and maternal. Wendy described Kurt as being a kind, compassionate, and caring child. He was extremely creative, and would fa- and would be found drawing like all the time. In fact, most of his family would note that as soon as he learned how to draw, he wouldn't stop drawing. And by 1970, uh, Wendy and Don would have a second child. On April April 24th, Kim Cobain was born. As Kurt got older, his parents were starting to notice how hyperactive he was. He would bounce around just really hard to pin down and sit still so in fact kurt Kurt's father Don, would have a hard time dealing with how off the wall Kurt always acted out so Dom Don Dom dom <laughs> Don was um a firm believer in a child should be seen and not heard, type of a deal. And Wendy would note in the documentary uh, montage of Heck that Don would be little and ridicule Kurt uh, for how off the wall he actually was. <clears throat> Wendy would later take Kurt to the doctors to see what the fuck was going on with him, um, and this is where they prescribed him. Now, there are no mentions anywhere of him being diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. But from how his behavior was as a teenager, we can see a bit of ODD, which in recent studies, we see that ADHD is a symptom of ODD. Now, ODD is known as oppositional defiant disorder. It is a disorder uh, or a behavior disorder in which a child displays a pattern of angry or cranky mood, defiant or combative behavior, and a vindictiveness towards people in authority. The child's behavior often disrupts their their daily routine, including activities within the family and at school, but it seemed like the medication like Ritalin wasn't really doing her any good. So moving forward to 1976, this was the year that would be a huge turning point for kurt his parents would divorce Um, he would say in later interviews and those around him would note how difficult their divorce was for kurt to handle and we see how much he resented his parents in a way that he would act out even even more so after his parents divorce, Kurt would live with his mother and sister. But that wouldn't last long as Kurt and his mother didn't really get along too great. It got to the point where his mother wasn't able to handle his behavior. And he would later move in with his father. Now, by this time, Don remarried. And his new wife was Jennifer. Um, and Jennifer <laughs> would add to the family her daughter, Brianne. And her son James, from a previous marriage, and Don and Jennifer would later have a child of their own, uh, Chad Cobain. Kurt would move in with his father, right? And Don, <clears throat> Don would essentially get full custody of Kurt as of 1979, and he was 12 years old at the time. So by the time he was 12 years old, he would start the inconsistency of bouncing from home to home. When Kurt and Don wouldn't get along, Kurt would stay with his aunt and then he would stay with his uncle and then he would stay with his grandparents and then inevitably would be on Don's doorstep again. In 1980, just two years after Wendy granted Don full custody, Don would drop Kurt back off with her. And from there, Kurt would be in and out of the home throughout high school. During this time, he found marijuana as a way to escape the horrors of his reality. And in a way, it granted him the peace of normalcy, which I feel like a lot of uh, cannabis users, especially like stay at home mom, You know, like, if you're a mom like me and you smoke cannabis to just, like, chill and unwind at the end of the day, just to feel a bit of normalcy, like, you're not fucking alone. And obviously, you know, Kurt found marijuana as a way to find some sort of normalcy in his life. We all do it. Um, He was able to function the way everyone had wanted him to act sooner rather than later however weed wouldn't be the mend for everything anymore he started hanging out with some unsavory people mainly because they were the only people who had weed in town it's noted in the documentary montage of heck that this group of degenerates would visit a girl from their high school who kurt would call fat quiet and illiterate They would only go and hang out with her so that they could steal booze from her house. Yeah, that was a thing. (laughs) Um, Now, because Weed wasn't doing such a great job of helping him cope anymore, he started resorting to stealing alcohol and causing vandalism across this quiet, logging town. Overall, throughout high school, his mental health would start to tank. By the time he was a senior in high school, he was barely attending school at all. I would say this, I would say by this time, he was starting to have a lot of uh, emotional and mental abuse from his mother. Um, He was living, (laughs) he was living life inside turmoil and just trying to get through the day. He was planning on killing himself at one point, Um, and Kurt was having a hard time making friends, saying everyone he knew was phony. He didn't want to end his life. I don't want to even say this. (laughs) This is so awkward. I'm just going to preface this real quick. I'm going to reference a lot of documentaries in this, in this episode. One, because I'm a big fan of documentaries. And two, I think... it's prevalent to point these out because they were done by the people who knew him the best. Um, So I am going to be referencing these documentaries a lot. So in Montauk, Montauk, in Montage of Heck, it's a documentary that was produced by his daughter, Frances Bean. Um, And it had a bunch of his journal entries and never before heard like, cassette tapes right and so it's a great watch so if you ever want to watch it I highly recommend it it's it's a really great watch but in the documentary it talks about how he loses his virginity so he was planning on and like committing suicide but he didn't want to commit suicide before didn't want to commit suicide a virgin so in the documentary it talks about how kurt loses his virginity to the girl that he was stealing booze from and he clearly did not enjoy it i'm not gonna really go into detail because it's not really prevalent to the story at all or it's not really prevalent to anything it just it's there for you if you you want it's there for you if you care (laughs) but uh clearly he didn't enjoy it and was Grossed out by her in general. But this act alone was enough to keep Kurt afloat until the girl's father came to the school and accused someone of assaulting his daughter. Aberdeen is small, it's a small, small town. So everyone knows everyone's business. And it wasn't long before everyone at school knew that it was him. And other students were making fun of him for it and they were bullying him. So this led to him actually going through with his suicide attempt. And how he did that in in his journal entries, he states that he was walking the train tracks smoking and drinking and then decided to lay down on the tracks and place cylinder blocks on top of his chest or cement blocks on top of his chest and his legs and he was waiting for the 11 o'clock train to roll around. And when it did roll around, it actually was on the other train's the other train tracks but like this event scared him into uh, like it woke him up enough so that he was able to rehabilitate himself again and he was able to i wouldn't necessarily say like force himself to be better because he was still having a hard time um but about two weeks before graduation kurt decided to drop out of high school and this pissed his mama off. Pissed his mama off. So much so that she would kick him out for the final time. From here, he would start bouncing from couch to couch, even living under the Aberdeen Bridge. When we all know that bridge. When my grandparents live in Ocean Shore and you have to drive through Aberdeen to get to Ocean Shore. And I drove across that bridge. And when we drove across the bridge, I looked over at my husband who knows nothing about this shit. I looked at him and I was like, do you know who used to live under this bridge? And he's like, no. I was like, this was Kurt Cobain's bridge. He used to live under this fucking bridge. And he was like, I did not know that. And I was like, well, now you do. And now you do too. So at this stage in Kurt's life, we start to see him fall in love and you know start finding a purpose he wanted to do his own thing and pave his own way in life and he found punk rock music and it's in the message that it had and absolutely fell head over heels and realized his love for music now when he was 14 years old he did receive his first guitar and was taking lessons for a short amount of time but in that time Um, Kurt was able to learn and in the time that he was able to learn and play the guitar, his ability to create his own sound was noted even at an early age. Sorry, back on topic. (laughs) The year is 1985, okay? Kurt drops out of high school and he has a lot of instability going on in his life, but he is exploring and discovering who he is. And during this time, he discovers punk rock music and the scene that it comes with. So I honestly feel like Kurt had a hard time expressing himself freely at a young age. And what I mean by that is, is like he had limitations put on him from others. He refused to accept those limitations. And he wanted to do his own thing and find the place where he was accepted for who he was and what his beliefs were. Essentially, he was like, I'm not going to fit inside this box that you're putting me in and that is clearly who who Kurt was and who it was through his music. Punk scene and music was a safe space for all of that. We hear a lot of punk rock influence in Nirvana's first album Bleach and don't get me wrong, Beatles were a huge influence for Kurt, but we also have but there were like an there was a whole slew of other bands like including the Melvins, right? Through his interest in punk rock music, he met a dear friend and bandmate, Chris Novoselic. Now, Kurt was invited to his house one day, like how they met. He was invited to his house one day by his younger brother, Robert. And when Kurt heard the loud punk rock music coming from upstairs, Robert told him, Oh, that's just my big brother. And thus, a beautiful friendship began. Chris was even said during has even said during interviews about his friendship with Kurt, that he always had to express himself. It was just who Kurt was. They decided to form a band, testing out new sounds and ways of playing and writing music. They would essentially play inside houses, and then those houses turned into you know other gigs outside of the house you know like maybe little bars little strips here and there and you know they would play and if they only got like two people they like considered it a gig so like no matter where they were playing like they were just always playing music and by 1986 they would eventually move to Olympia Washington where Kurt ends up meeting Tracy Margener at a party. I wouldn't say that the two were smitten with each other, but they definitely had a deep love and understanding of one another. A lot of people have mentioned that if it wasn't for Tracy, Nirvana would have never been a thing. And I beg to differ. Okay. Kurt was headed in that direction anyways. He wanted to be a musician, regardless if Tracy was there or not he would have made his way onto the scene. Probably not as explosive as they did, but it would have eventually happened. He was a very ambitious person and he wanted to be successful. Therefore, he was successful. Tracy and Kurt moved in together and she provided everything for him. Food, housing, space and time for him to write and pursue his dream of becoming a musician. The thing about Kurt was that he wasn't a nine-to-five kind of guy. I don't think we are nine-to-five kind of guys over here. And remember, he doesn't follow authoritative figures very well. So why on earth would he fit into a capitalistic society? In 1987, Kurt and Chris had formed their band and were playing gigs around town and gaining a following slowly but surely in the local music scene. The band had gone through multiple names and about five drummers before they settled on Nirvana and Dave Grohl as their drummer in 1990. It is mentioned that in 1987, it, it was the first time that Kurt used heroin. Um, and that was in... The documentary montage, Montauk, no, Montage of Heck. Um, it is noted in that documentary that, um, that the, this was around the time that Kurt first started using heroin. And he used it as a way because he was starting to develop stomach issues during this time. And it was his way of dealing with those stomach issues. That is just, I want to say, the rumor, I feel like rumor is a good word. That's just the overall understanding, right? But Tracy stated that she had never seen Kurt use it, and even if he was using it, she never knew. He never showed any signs um, that he was using, most certainly didn't behave in that manner. And she even stated that he would make fun of people who did use. The gaining success of the band's sound and gigs, they would eventually sign to Sub Pop Records and record and publish their first studio album, The Leech. This album has a very famous song on it called About a Girl, which is written about Tracy's and Kurt's very fracturing relationship or very kind of unbalanced I wouldn't say fracturing I shouldn't say fracturing it's a very unbalanced relationship but essentially about a girl is about Tracy I thought that was like a really kind of sweet homage you know that's so cute regardless of how their you know relationship went because the fact that they never formally broke up like, it tugs at me. It fucking tugs at me, dude. Kurt just stopped coming home. Like, he just... And when you listen to About a Girl um, in the lyrics, it, it kind of gives that homage of, like, never coming home or, like, never coming back type of deal. Kurt was someone that took his art seriously, and Tracy gave him that freedom to create. I think when the relationship no longer served its purpose, Kurt just decided to leave. During these gigs, Kurt would break... But the best part is during their early shows, Kurt used to break his guitar. He carried two guitars with him. He would carry his main one and then his second one. Like He would exchange them out on set. And he would break that second guitar at at the at the end of every gig at the end of every show and he would essentially glue it and like put it back together like frankenstein the fucking thing and then he would continuously keep breaking it at the next show glue it back together break it at the next show glue it back together break it at the next show. It's like a never ending cycle um and he he did that with like just that one guitar during like the beginning portion of of Nirvana and and them traveling and doing these gigs like that was just something that he did during this time period between Bleach and Nevermind comes one of the most controversial moves that Nirvana did as a band and I say controversial very loosely because it's really not that big of a deal but when you think about it in the, in the context of punk rock music or, you know, just like that grunge scene back in the early 90s and the late 80s, um, you never want it to be labeled as a sellout. And that's exactly what they did. They signed, they made their move from sub pop records to DGC records and they essentially abandoned an independent label for a major label and it's kind of sad because like the the owner of sub pop records was just like if they just stuck it out with us you know like just went gradually up the hill they would have gotten somewhere you know but they wanted to. A- I feel, I feel like it's like that J.G. Wentworth fucking um, commercial. Like, it's my money and I want it now. Not saying that, you know, Kurt wanted money and he wanted it now. It was just more the thought of, I want success and I want it now. Like, I want my music everywhere. Like, that was his essential thought, right? He just wanted his music everywhere. He wanted a regular Joe Schmo guy to just see their their record label in a popular store and be able to purchase it. Like, that's essentially what he wanted. And that, to him, was success. So that was a controversial move. They went from an independent record label to a major record label. And they were essentially, people thought that they were sellouts because of that move. I don't necessarily think that the different, like, moving record labels necessarily made them a sellout or their music any more mainstream than it already was. And the reason why I think this is because in an interview with Dave Dural, he said that Kurt started writing the songs that were featured on Nevermind a year before they made the move to a major record label. And Nevermind was originally set to be recorded by Sub Pop, but their relationship was, it was rocky. And the recording that they did that was supposed to be the second album ended up being a demo instead. And they were bringing that demo around to other businesses, other record labels, other people, right? So one of the main reasons why they decided to move labels was the distribution factor right so indie labels like sub pop didn't have the reach the way that major labels do and that was something that Nirvana wanted and Kurt was quoted saying that he wanted to get a better reach when it came to his music he wanted the average teen in Aberdeen to get a choice to choose their music whether which was something that he never had. So the decision was made in, in 1990. Nirvana left Sub Pop and they made their move to G, D, DGC. And meanwhile, Nirvana is still playing gigs around the local area and across the state. All right. So let's get into the timeline of when Kurt met Courtney. Because it was January 12th, 1990. Okay. When these two met, and they met at a bar gig type of place where Nirvana was one of the bands that was playing, right? So Courtney tagged along with her friend who was dating a member of the band that was opening up for Nirvana. And Courtney noticed him walk by and recalls trying to flirt with him and ended up wrestling around with her on the bar floor. So Kurt would later recount, quote, I probably wanted to fuck her that night, but she left, end quote. And that same day that he met Courtney, he was still dating Tracy. In fact, Tracy was at that bar that very same night. And from that point on, Courtney became obsessed with him. Like most rock critics at the time, she preferred Mud Honey, And after listening to Love Buzz in the record store she passed on buying the single seeing the band in concert later she was more struck by their strange physical appearance quote Chris was really really big and he dwarfed Kurt to the point where you couldn't see how cute Kurt was because he looked like a tiny boy interesting very interesting interesting I would love to take a deep dive into Courtney Love's life because she is a very, very interesting life, if I must say so. But back to the timeline, okay? Okay, okay. So Nirvana's Nevermind album was released in 1991, and this is when they exploded onto the scene. Wendy even mentioned that when Kurt showed her the album, she started crying, not because she was happy for him, but because she was terrified for him. She knew that this was going to be a breakthrough record for him. And she knew that fame was not something Kurt was going to be able to handle. Facts. Like she fucking knew her son. I'll give her credit where credit is due. She knew her son and she knew him very, very well. So Kurt and the rest of his bandmates were noted not to be interested in doing interviews. Um, they found it very mundane and very boring. Kurt really just wanted it to be about the music, but the questions being asked had nothing to do with music. Kurt was the type of person who was meticulous when it came to his projects, to his art, and he would get quite upset if he felt like he was being humiliated. In fact, um Chris confirmed that type of, you know, behavior because every time or the first time that they got like a bad review, like Kurt took it to fucking heart. So Kurt and Courtney met for a second time in May of 1991 during an L7 concert at the Palladium in Los Angeles. Kurt was backstage drinking cough syrup directly from the bottle. It was in a bitter fate because Courtney opened her purse and pulled out her own vial of cough syrup. And that she did. (laughs) That she motherfucking did. And it was a more powerful brand, if I might add. So they wrestled around on the ground again, and the vibe became very sexual. And uh, when Kurt let her up, they talked shop. And Courtney was quick to brag that her band, Hole, had finished recording Pretty on the Inside with Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth Producing. And Kurt talked about his own album, which was still in production. He um, was usually meek when meeting someone for the first time, but in his efforts to impress Courtney, he pulled out all the motherfucking saps. Okay, he he was pulling out names, credentials, fucking everything he possibly could. But he clearly wanted to one up her, you know, like just I'm 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 impre- I'm-, I'm impressive. You know, kind of like male showboating. But Kurt soon discovered that um few could gain a verbal advantage over love. She knew far more about the music business than he did. And Hole's career was accelerating as quickly as Nirvana's at the time. In their conversation, Kurt disclosed he was staying at the Oakwood Apartments. And Courtney told him that she lived just a few blocks away. What a coincidence. So she wrote down her phone number. She gave him her digits. Okay. On a bar napkin, no less. Uh, It's like the perfect love story. (laughs) And then he tried to call her, like, at some point, right? She was earnestly flirting, and he was obviously flirting back. So later that night, at 3 o'clock in the morning, Kirk calls Courtney, right? But she had to fucking whisper. Why? Because her ex-boyfriend and bandmate, Eric Eraldilson, Airless, air listen, listened, was sleeping like right next to her, and might I add, she was also in a long distance relationship with Billy Corgan of the fucking Smashing Pumpkins. Say what? <laughs> like, granted, they only talked for like an hour, but like during that hour that they were talking, they talked about anything and everything. And the fact that courtney was able to hop from one topic to the next to the next to the next had kurt just mesmerized by her in fact he would go on for weeks recalling their conversation saying he met the coolest girl in the world it would be five months before they would see each other again but during that time kurt would recall their conversation frequently Wondering if it was real or just like a drug-induced dream caused by way too much cough syrup. It could be both. But of October of 1991, that time comes around and Kurt and Courtney would make things official. They are officially together. With the popularity of Nevermind hitting the mainstream like a hot motherfucker potato, Kurt would find himself doing interview after interview show after show come um coming up to february of 1992 just four months after making things official with courtney they decided to tie the knot and that was on february 24th of 1992 in honolulu hawaii kurt wore a famously green (laughs) bathrobe to his wedding ceremony. Fucking iconic. It was during this time period from May of 1991 and February of 1992 that it was starting to become noticeable that Kurt was starting to withdraw into himself. So my speculation is is that this was the height of his drug addiction. Right? So Courtney once mentioned that she introduced Kurt to heroin because he wanted to try it and she was already sober from using it before but apparently didn't want him to do it alone. So back off the wagon for her. But then again, in his journal entries, the first time he tried heroin was back in 1987. So when it comes to when he first was introduced to heroin there's really no definitive answer there's really no clear-cut you know answer of when he actually did start using but there's that so especially during the six months that they that he took off after the release of nevermind um and he got married to courtney he took like a six-month hiatus In Montage of Heck, Courtney would later say that um, during that time period, all Kurt wanted to do was paint, hang out with her and do heroin. And she also mentioned that Kurt said he wanted to be a millionaire and then be a junkie. Literally quoted from the documentary. I shit you not. She's like, these are his words apparently these are his words like that's just all he wanted to be but um during that six-month hiatus there was attempts to become sober as courtney was pregnant with their daughter Frances bean courtney kept assuring kurt that the baby would be fine if she were to do heroin while pregnant i'm i'm sure you'll be fine Kurt tried incredibly hard to get sober during this time frame as well. And many friends and family expressed how concerned that they were for the baby because of their drug use. Now, come to August 18th, 1992, Frances Bean was born. is she a little Leo? Along with the birth of their daughter came the scrutiny and the bad publicity to Love, claiming she was using heroin while pregnant with Frances Bean. So during that time, Love denied that she ever used while pregnant. But in later documentaries, she would admit to using. So we can already see a pattern here, right? We, we can see a pattern here. But as a result, they were battling with child services in Los Angeles. And they were not allowed to be alone with their daughter for a month. In their interviews, um, Cobain admitted to using heroin after he and love had already been detoxed before Francis Bean was born. And in the spring of 1993, Nirvana started to record in utero. They were recording this album in Minnesota with the producer Steve Albini, and Kurt's relationship with his bandmates would start to become rocky during this time due to his drug use. And during this time, Cobain was said to be sober, but that would soon also to take a turn. May 2nd of 1993, he would return home from recording and he was said to be flush, shaking, and dazed. Love would call the police and according to the police report, Cobain had taken heroin. The Rolling Stone reporter, uh, or the Rolling Stone reported that Love had injected heroin with an illegal drug called, oh, Lord have mercy, buprenorphine that can be used to awaken a person who had overdosed on heroin. She also gave him three Benadryls, a Valium, and four Tylenol tablets with with codeine, all of which caused Cobain to throw up. And Love had told the police all of this had happened before. So it was fine. It was fine. This has happened before. So I just did it again. Months later, police would arrive again to the Cobain residence for a domestic assault. This was the first domestic assault. I think only. Yeah, this is the first and only domestic assault. I think that they had. But Love and Cobain had been arguing over guns in the house and Cobain had been arrested and spent three hours in jail. The guns had been confiscated, and one of those guns belonged to Dylan Carlson. This guy comes in later, so remember him. Okay, Dylan Carlson. And according to a source, this dispute was actually over Cobain's drug use. Uh, That I can believe. On July 23rd in New York, Kurt experienced another overdose. Love found him unconscious. Unconscious. Love had found him unconscious on the floor. Nevertheless, Nirvana still performed that night and fans would never know the difference. I have questions. How can you be able to overdose in the morning and then go do a rock show at night? I I, I have questions. Now... L- Love has already admitted, especially in the documentary Soaked in Bleach, to feed the press stories that are lies in order to gain some sort of publicity, whether it was good publicity or bad publicity. It was still publicity and it still had all the attention drawn onto them. I'm still, I'm still in shock and awe that someone can have an overdose in the morning, and then go play a gig, a rock show, nonetheless in the evening. Keep in mind, this is all while Kurt still had undiagnosed stomach issues, so he was in constant pain. So, like, I can understand. I see that's the thing it's like I can this is where things start you can tell right (laughs) this is where the inconsistencies start to happen for me I'm just like "Mm, that doesn't make any sense you're saying one thing and then another source is saying another thing so what is actually true what is true and what is not like it, it can't it can't be both it's one or the other because I I just don't I don't see how that would work so after Cobain would return home to Seattle friends had started to notice that Kurt would retreat into himself only keeping the company of Callie Francis Francis Beans nanny and Jack Ferry who is a former babysitter and assistant manager Cobain never seemed to think he had any sort of problem though many doctors that had seen him would confirm his diagnosis of clinical depression and dramatic mood swings many would say how often his mood would change one minute he would be happy and cheery and then the next minute he was in the corner moody and not wanting to say anything i mean we can already see the pattern here right like when he was a kid he didn't really do well with authoritative figures And to see how the progression of Nirvana's fame just kind of skyrocketed, like, it was literally... explode. They exploded onto the scene. That's, That's how it was. One minute, they were nobodies. The next minute, everybody wanted a fucking piece of them. And you can only imagine what that does to somebody who doesn't necessarily want fame? From my understanding, all Kurt wanted to do was have his music reach people. That's all he wanted. The fame and the money and everything else that comes with it is not something that I think he was expecting or even wanting himself. His version of success seems very different than everyone else's version of success. Here's the thing. Courtney is a nepotism baby. Her father was one of the managers for the Grateful Dead. And then her mother was also in the industry. I don't remember what her mother did. But so she already had a very vast knowledge. She already had a way in. And she knew how all of this shit worked. Right? But... Like I was saying, we could see that in how he was growing up. He always had an issue with authoritative figures. He always had a problem with people telling him what to do, how to do it. And if he's constantly doing... I could see why he wanted to retreat into himself and why he would become moody. I mean, if if fame was that hard to grapple with and deal with, especially if you're having health issues, especially if you have you know, depression issues? What if he had anxiety issues? Like, I could see. And then on top of that, he's a drug addict. So I can see where these mood swings and all of that shit was coming from. Like, I I can understand that being true. By September of 1993, In Utero was released. Kurt did not want to do any more long tours mainly because he wanted to get his stomach issues under control during this time he was detoxing from heroin yet again um before they were to go on tour and november of 93 nirvana recorded mtv unplugged which would be released a year later in november of 1994 On January 8th of 1994, Nirvana would play their last American show. After the tour ended, it was supposed to be a relaxing six weeks off before they were to start their European tour. Cobain was hot on the works to get the In Utero albums um, in Kmart and Walmart, which had previously rejected the album due to a few things rape me was changed to waif me and the model fetuses on the back of the album cover had to be removed because apparently they didn't want that shit on there so february 2nd nirvana would travel to france to appear on a tv show before that they would kick start their european tour in Lesbon, portugal those were going great however It was visible that Cobain was tired and lethargic. About 10 to 12 days into the tour, Cobain started to lose his voice. And by, but, you know, the show must go on. He was given a throat spray that would ease the relief. But as they traveled through Europe, the tour would come to an end in Germany, where Kurt lost his voice halfway through set. He was told by a specialist to take four to six weeks of vocal rest. He was then given medicine and a spray for his throat and lungs. He had been diagnosed with laryngitis and bronchitis. And the show in Munich, Germany, that would be the last show that Nirvana would ever play together. Novoselic flew back to Seattle. Grohl went and stayed in Germany to participate in a video shoot. And Kurt and Pat Smear... Would move, would make their way to Rome. Uh, Pat Smear was a guest guitarist on their tour. Um, I'm assuming just to like help out and make things you know go a little bit easier. On March 3rd, Cobain would check into a five star hotel called the Excelsior. Excelsior. Meanwhile, in London, a writer for the British Monthly Select was interviewing Love in regards to her upcoming album, or al- no. He was talking to her about an upcoming tour. And during this interview, Love was seen taking Rohypnol. What is Rohypnol? This is a common fucking drug, and um, in this case this shit comes up more times than i care to fucking admit rohypnol is a tranquilizer and according to pharmacists this drug is used to treat insomnia it is also used to treat anxiety and is used as an alternative to methadone what the fuck is methadone you might ask so methadone is used to help treat alcohol and heroin withdrawal symptoms the next afternoon, Love and Francis Bean and Callie meet up with Kurt in Rome. And that evening, Kurt asked the, the bellboy to file a prescription for Rohypnol and also to bring up some fucking champagne to their room because they were going to take some drugs and drink and have a grand old time, apparently. So, 6.30 rolls around the following morning and Love found Cobain unconscious. Reaching for him, she found that his nose was bleeding and he was rushed immediately to the Romas Umberto Polyclinic Hospital where he spent five hours in emergency treatment and was then transferred to the American Hospital. At that time... <clears throat> It was seen as an accidental overdose by the me but the media would later find out that there was approximately fifty pills in his stomach. However, according to the doctor that treated him in Rome, the doctor denies that those statements altogether. He stated that Kurt never had that many pills in his stomach. And supposedly, according to Love, he left a note. Kurt left a note. And he was going to take all his motherfucking money and he was going to go far away from love and he was going to divorce her. This is where the first time it comes up, he was planning on leaving her. Upon returning from Rome on March 18th, another call to the police was made due to a domestic escalated to disaster. Yeah, that was, that was, that's what it's called. A domestic situation escalated to disaster love had told the police officers that kurt had locked himself in a room with a 38 caliber rifle and said that he was going to kill himself kurt had told the officer though that he wasn't planning on taking his life at all officers then confiscated the gun and then multiple pill bottles with various unidentified pills containing or that were contained within them few days later on march 25th a a group of kurt's closest friends and family uh staged an intervention those among that were involved in the intervention were chris novoselic pat smear john silva uh billy dylan carlson love and goldberg who was his i believe his entertainment lawyer's husband. During the intervention, Love claimed that she would leave Kurt if he didn't go to rehab and Chris said that he had a separate conversation with Kurt like a more one-on-one and heart-to-heart kind of conversation and Pat Smear did the same thing. And Kurt eventually agreed and Love had tried to convince Kurt to go to rehab together but he refused. He, He wanted to go on his own to exodus, and love would go into her patient outpatient detox program at the peninsula hotel in in uh Beverly Hills right, so we're moving on to the last days of uh, the last known days of Kurt Cobain because after that intervention that was staged, that state is that the appropriate verbiage. A staged intervention. I'm gonna have to get more high for this. Hang on. So now we're getting into the last days of Kurt Cobain. I know the events leading up to his death, they were fucking chaotic. And the one thing that was certain in Kurt's life was that his relationship was on the rocks. His band was the number one rock band in the world at the time. That was also on the fucking rocks was trying to get sober and he was juggling being a father a rock star a husband and other creative products products (laughs) and other creative projects that he had in the works right so he had a lot on his plate he had a lot going on and it's really hard to like focus on things like when you're not mentally in that headspace when you're addicted to something when you're there It just seems very overwhelming. He had a very overwhelming life. Um, Love had mentioned that he was in constant communication with R.E.M. lead singer Michael Stipe. He had been working with Stipe on a few projects. It was also known that Nirvana wasn't going to be lasting much longer anyways, and Kurt wanted something different. And he was looking at ways of expanding his music and projects to something other than just nirvana. He was a highly deep and revolutionary person who wanted to test the boundaries of our very existence. And in his own words, it was about the music and nothing else. Anything else that comes with it was not something that he was interested in. I will go into my own personal opinions and viewpoints after we take a deep dive into the strange circumstances that surround his death. It's important to note the facts, the timeline, and of course, the official reports and statements that have been made out of respect for his family and others involved. All right, let's get into it. <clears throat> so Kurt had agreed to go to the rehabilitation center known as Exodus, which is located in California. On March 30th, Kurt and Dylan would go to a gun shop and purchase a shotgun, the one that was later used to kill Kurt. And the reason behind the purchase was of this shotgun in particular was because they experienced a string of burglaries, and this was a means of protection. Right, And Kurt flies from Seattle to Los Angeles and checks into Exodus. After he gets checked into the facility, he would receive a visit from Jackie Ferry and his daughter, um, Francis Bean. Remember, Jackie Ferry is the um, longtime nanny that looks after Francis. And this would be the last time Kurt would be, see his daughter during his very short lived stay in rehab however Courtney would end up making 13 calls to Kurt all of them go unanswered alright so we're already seeing there's a little bit of uh there's some trouble in paradise okay things aren't really sitting right you know husband's not talking to his wife shit's going down Shit is going down. April 1st, after only staying at the facility for a little over 24 hours, he joked with the staff about hopping a six-foot fence that surrounded the facility. He eventually did just that. He went outside to smoke a cigarette and then proceeded to hop the fence. Once he left, he got into a taxi and arrived at LAX and took a flight back to Seattle. During this flight, it is noted that he sat next to Duff McK- uh, McKagan, the basis for Guns N' Roses at the time. Now Duff made a statement saying that there wasn't anything unusual about his encounter with Cobain. In fact, he s- he said he seemed pretty optimistic. I, can I just, I want, I just had a realization in something. If Kurt had a hard time being told what to do and actually doing it his whole entire life, why would telling him that he needs to go to rehab be any different? If Kurt wants to become sober, Kurt will become sober. It's the same concept for anybody who's looking to become sober. You can't force somebody into sobriety. They have to choose it. It is a choice. Do I think Kurt wanted to choose to be sober? Yes. I think he wanted to become sober. But that's the thing. Kurt wanted to become sober on his own terms. I'm just going to leave it at that. He wanted to become sober on his own terms. That's clear and for him to seem pretty optimistic going back to Seattle I think I think he had some unfinished business and he wanted to get his ducks in a row before he made any moves April 2nd around 1230 in the morning Kurt arrives in Seattle He goes to his uh, Lake Washington home and visits with Callie and his girlfriend, Jessica Hopper. Kurt was last seen by Callie on April 2nd. Phone records show that Courtney called Callie eight times on April 2nd. April 2nd is also the last day anyone had seen Kurt. April 3rd, this was the day that uh, Courtney hired a private investigator his name is tom grant um it was the intention of why courtney called him in the first place was to help find out where kurt might be when she calls grant she tells him that she thinks her credit cards have been stolen and he tells her that maybe you should go to the fucking police for that shit and she was like, no, 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 no. My husband and I were fucking famous and she doesn't want this in the public eye. Agreeing to meet up with Courtney at her hotel. Upon meeting, she gives him a sharp fucking warning, bro. That if he leaks any of this to the press, she's gonna sue the fuck out of him. What a way to greet somebody. And <laughs> During their whole conversation, Courtney had told Grant that Kurt escaped rehab, bought a plane ticket and hasn't been seen since. She got a hold of his uh, she got a hold of the credit card companies and the one that Kurt used to purchase the tickets. um, She had them canceled um, as if they were stolen. However, they were they were never stolen. Right. Essentially cutting him off from funds. But wouldn't Kurt have access to other accounts and funds? According to Grant, Courtney described Kurt as somebody who was helpless and wasn't able to do a single thing by himself. She was also mentioning how suicidal Kurt was. At the end of this conversation, Grant told Courtney that if he was really suicidal and bought a shotgun, then this credit card issue is the least of her worries and that they should probably gear their attention towards finding Kurt. But Courtney was insistent on him starting with this credit card issue. On April 4th, Courtney told Grant that she called the credit card companies and found out that Kurt bought two more tickets, but would not tell her any more information than that. Courtney always brought up divorce in her conversations with Grant, in the documentary, Soaked in Bleach, Grant would recall how often she would bring it up and that she was jealous of the women in, in Kurt's life, apparently. Uh, she would bring up how jealous she was of women in their inner circle, right? So she accused Kurt of having an affair with her bass player at the time, which was Melissa Aufdumor. more. And also his drug dealer. During this conversation with Grant, she also noted that she planted a story in the media that she OD'd in hopes that it would scare Kurt into calling her. This is where I said that she is notorious for planting. She admitted it. She admitted it that she planted a fake story in the newspaper why would any other thing that was reported on by the media be any different why would it be any different you shown us one way of how it how it is why would it be any different her album live through this which is a fucking great album by the way it's a fucking great album was to be released a week in about a week and thought it would be amazing press and would sell records. These tapes that Tom Grant records and are played in Soaked in Bleach do not show Courtney in the best light. It made her sound jealous and greedy and overall very controlling and pushy. Very controlling and Courtney also filed a missing persons report in at the Seattle Police Department, but she did so under Wendy O'Connor. Who's Wendy O'Connor, guys? That's fucking Kurt's mom. She called in saying, hey, I'm Wendy, I'm his mom. I want to call in a missing persons report. <clears throat> Claiming that he escaped a facility and was suicidal and possibly in the possession of a gun. Tom had people surveillancing Kurt's dealer's house as Courtney was fully blown, obsessed with the fact that he might be there. Grant offered surveillance to Courtney's uh, house, but Courtney refused and said that it wasn't needed because Callie was there this house this is the lake washington house he was like i can put surveillance on this house just in case he comes by and because callie was there um courtney refused she was like if he shows up callie callie will tell me like there's no way that he that he wouldn't tell me that he didn't show up <coughs> Love gave Grant a list of fancy hotels that Kurt would be known to frequent and gave him his pseudonames so he can call these hotels and say, hey, has this person checked in? Hey, has this person checked in? On April 5th, right? We're on April 5th. Yeah. So on April 5th, when Grant didn't have any leads with the more expensive and luxurious hotels in the area, he focused on... His search on the smaller hotels and motels in the area ended up getting a hit on the pseudoname of Bill Bailey. Grant called Love and told him of his findings and wanted to send one of his guys over there to see if it was really Kurt. Love told him not to do that. She didn't want Kurt to know that she was looking for him and she wanted his guys to stake the place out. Just stake the place out, but uh, don't go in there and see if it's actually him. Like, just just stake it out. About 20 minutes had gone by, and then Love calls Grant again and tells him that she called the hotel. Grant was persistent on getting a surveillance team out to the Lake Washington home to see if her would be home by any chance, and Courtney still refused at that point. She called the hotel. She did it herself. If you don't want this person to know that you're trying to fucking find them, why the hell would you call the fucking hotel? I just... I. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in the fucking least bit. It, on april 6th grant states to courtney that he would like to move the search up to seattle courtney said she wouldn't mind that he went right and when he asked her like hey do you want to come up with me so you can try and find your husband as well like we can get this done if you know all of his the spots where he goes and she Refused. She refused to go out there with him to try and find her husband who is possibly suicidal with a gun because she has business in L.A. to, t- to attend to. If your husband goes missing, if your wife goes missing, and you know they're suicidal and they're in possible possession of a gun, wouldn't you want to stop everything you're doing to try and find them especially <laughs> like I'm sorry it just it that, that I don't understand why she wouldn't have gone up there you know what I mean like red fucking flag red flag why do you not want to go up there <laughs> because you have eyes on the ground I just uh. Rosemary Carroll would later say in a recording that she had no business in L.A. at all. Love told Grant to meet up with Dylan Carlson. I told you that motherfucker would come back. He would come back quick. He was known as Kurt's best friend. and Dylan had told Grant that Kurt wasn't suicidal at all. He told Grant that he also didn't know why Kurt married Courtney as they fought all the time. There was no peace in their marriage and none of his closest friends would say Kurt was ever suicidal. Red flag number two, if if other people in his life are saying, no, he's not suicidal. Why is it being plastered that he's fucking suicidal or made out to be suicidal? That doesn't make sense. There are plenty of interviews where Kurt would say that people read too much into his lyrics his lyrics were some of what were an indicator of that he might be suicidal. And for the longest time, because of what he would write about, you know, and he even said in an interview that they're just lyrics. They're it's nothing other than him being lazy and not wanting to write anything. <laughs> like that that's what he said. And people are are taking or did take what he wrote about and twisted it into something that it wasn't also keep in mind he was dealing the majority of his career as a musician he was dealing with severe stomach issues so constantly being in a state of pain and agony you you kind of just like man I just want this to end like I kind of just I just want to, you know what I, I like when my appendix burst okay like, when I had to get surgery for my appendix to be removed, that pain, I was like, man, I don't fucking care that I'm going under the knife. I don't care how fast this is happening. I just want the pain to stop. Like, if, if all you want is the pain to stop, like, dark humor is going to come about in some way, shape, or form because you just have to learn how to deal with it at that point. Another thing Courtney tried to spin to the press is that that there's this Cobain curse right that two members of his family his great uncle and his great grandfather had committed suicide but those deaths were actually ruled as accidental deaths because that's what they were his grandfather according to a lifelong friend of the family got a bar and his gun released from its holster and it fell onto the floor, and it somehow managed to release, and it it shot him. And then his great uncle was drinking too much one night and got a little dizzy, and then all of a sudden he fell down some stairs and he died. Like so these these are just accidental deaths. There's there's no cobain curse, <laughs> apparently. But she was spinning it as if like everyone in his family had committed suicide. The best play that Courtney had in making the world believe that this was a suicide was all the other attempts Kurt had made, including Rome. In Rome, Kurt had wrote Courtney a letter stating that he was leaving her. When she is heard on the tapes in the recording. She states that she shows the letter to Sergeant Cameron and he told her to get rid of it. Why would an officer of the law tell someone to get rid of something that clearly gives motive? Flag. Red fucking flag. On April 7th, Tom Grant and Dylan try looking for Kurt in his Seattle home. Dylan was the only one that Courtney wanted to talk to while Grant was up there. So, Courtney never spoke with Grant once Grant got to Seattle. She only spoke to Dylan, and Dylan would relay the messages from there on out. She wanted them to go back to the Lake Washington house and look for the gun. She mentioned that it might have been in a hidden compartment in her bedroom. She was like dead set on finding this gun. When they got there... Uh, They were looking for any sign that Kurt might have been there along with the gun. So since no one was answering the door, they got in through the window and they began their search. They searched the entire home, right? Moving pillows, mattresses, and blankets, looking inside motherfucking closets. They were looking everywhere, right? Right and this is when Tom finds the Rohypnol underneath Courtney's bed they also found a letter from Callie to Kurt interesting it says (laughs) cause I have what it says really he's the live-in nanny for Francis Bean and he lives at the Lake Washington home so he has his own little room and section in that house So Callie leaves a note to Kurt, and this is what they find, right? This is what the letter says. Quote, Kurt, I can't believe you managed to be in this house without me noticing. You're a fucking asshole for not calling Courtney and at least letting her know that you're okay. She's in a lot of pain, Kurt, and this morning she had another accident, and now she's in the hospital again. End quote with no luck finding any leads they decide to leave the house but before they do tom even asked tom grant even asked dylan if there was anywhere else on the property or home that kurt might have been keep in mind they also looked inside that secret compartment to find the gun and they did not find the gun they could not find it anywhere um but dylan said no there there was no other place that Kurt would have been on this property, at this house. <clears throat> and if there was, they would have found him. If he was there, he would have answered the door. On April 8th, the electrician comes out to the Cobain residence. Um, the same house that Grant and Dylan were at the night before looking for Kurt. They were so this electrician company was actually running wire for security cameras that were going to be installed on the property Um, when they got there they went to the the greenhouse which is above the garage and when they noticed the body on the floor the police were called and thus the investigation would begin or not There was no such thing as an investigation, I guess, happening here. So I'm going to go into um, not a lot of detail, but I am going to be going into detail about how he was found. So if you are triggered in any sort of way in regards to um, suicide, um, floor shit, this is your warning. So in the greenhouse, the French doors were locked which are the doors on the opposite side of the actual entrance of the room, right? The shotgun was found in his lap, upside down with his left hand on the barrel of the gun in what is called a cadaver spasm. And there was a significant amount of blood pooled around him. They looked around to see if there was any male or an ID that could identify the body and a police officer noticed that his wallet was laying out with his ID in view this was actually debunked the officer found his wallet next to him pulled it, opened it up and pulled his ID out um, the picture was just simply that in, for evidence of a way to identify who the body was Suicide side note was l- was left in a planter with a red pen jabbed through it. The shotgun shell was found to the left of Cobain, which didn't make sense physically as the chamber release was on the right side of Cobain. But the SBPD, or the SPD stated that Cobain must have had the shotgun facing upright and upon firing, the gun twisted upside down. But this contradicts the cadaver spasm um, that Kurt's left hand was displaying. The cadaver spasm shows you the exact placement of his hand at the exact moment that shotgun went off and was fired and the exact moment of which he died. So if he's holding something and it doesn't move, this is where it stays. Like, it, it doesn't move and if that were possible then how would it just it doesn't make sense that or the shell bounced off or ricocheted off of something that was obvious but clearly to his right but if that's the case then that means because there was nothing there there was nothing there for that shell to ricochet off of but if that is the case if it if the shell did ricochet off of something to his right, then wouldn't that mean that somebody was standing right next to him in order for that to happen? Flynn received a call that a body had been found at Kurt's house. And when he told Grant, he was surprised and rushed back to the house. When he arrived, he told officers that he was a private investigator that was hired by Love, Cobain's wife, to find him <clears throat> and had information that might be useful for their investigation. When they got there, he realized how noticeable the greenhouse actually was in, in daylight, like it was pure as day, it was right there. Um, But at night, it you really had to be looking for this particular room in order to see it. So by then the police had already ruled or pretty much already ruled his death as a suicide as it had been staged to appear that way. I say staged very loosely. I say staged very loosely, allegedly staged. The main investigator told him to come back, to, told Tom Grant to come back to the police department the next morning to for them to collect The evidence and Tom Tom Grant I don't blame him but like if if he was there the night before a supposed suicide or murder or death happened wouldn't you want that person to stay there like wouldn't you want to get information from this particular individual but no they were like just come back tomorrow come to the police department tomorrow Bring all your shit, and we'll go through it. We're just totally fucking nonchalant about this whole fucking thing, right? The Seattle Police Department received scrutiny in regards to how they handled this scene. Just because the scene looked like a suicide doesn't mean that it was a suicide. I can't say that if something like this were to happen again today that this wouldn't fucking happen, but I know that there are other cases that come into my mind where I think they they did a disservice to how this investigation those investigations went, including this one. Like, I just I would love to say that it just doesn't happen anymore, but it happens still. So during this time, they they knew nothing about fingerprints. Apparently, they knew nothing about toxicology. They just saw someone with a gun in their hand and it looked like a suicide. This was a death investigation. Regardless of a homicide or a suicide, you're investigating a death. And there's just so many inconsistencies with this investigation just right off the bat. And the media was stating that he barricaded himself in that greenhouse. When in the report it states that the main door was locked. It was a twist lock. And there was a stool just in front of the French doors on the other side of the of the room. And in that same report, just further down, they stated that the stool was in front of the main door blocking the entrance. But the EMTs that arrived on scene stated that there was nothing blocking the main entrance. On top of that, the SPD also never developed the crime scene photos because they don't develop crime scene photos for suicides. So the photos are still in the possession of the SPD and have yet to be fucking developed. Though they did develop at least, I want to say, two or three By 2011, I think. So, like, years. Years after his death, they decide to develop some of them. Not all of them, but some of them. Their negligent death investigation. The SPD allowed Kurt to be cremated. Six days after being found. 30 days of them to process it took them 30 days to process fingerprints on the shotgun and then allowed the greenhouse crime scene to be torn down and destroyed and they gave the shotgun back to courtney to have her melt it down by then the toxology report would come back and it would indicate that he had a heroin blood level of 1.52 milligrams per liter That is 10, I think it's 10 times the amount of a lethal dose. 10 times the amount of a lethal dose to any human, whether you're a heavy user or not. That is a lethal dose. 10 times the amount of a lethal dose of heroin. There would be no way... He could take that amount of heroin and still remain conscious. There's just no way. Because when, you're, when you inject heroin into your system, it is direct. It is in your bloodstream. It is the quickest way to feel the effects of a drug. And if there is three times the amount of that, there is no way anyone would be able to remain conscious whether or not you're a heavy user or not. Um, so this means, right, he would have to remain conscious enough to take off the tourniquet, take out the needle, put it back in the box that was found next to him, pick up the shotgun, put it in his mouth, and pull the trigger. Oh, and also roll down his sleeves, because his sleeves were also rolled down all while before the effects of the drug were to kick in. It makes sense, right? It makes total fucking sense. All of the questions that we have can be answered by the medical examiner, Uh, their office, right? His autopsy report, all of this can be made sense if his autopsy report would be made public, his autopsy report is not public, so we don't know, and we'll never know. And that still just doesn't make sense, right? So Love refused to go up with Grant to try and find her husband, but according to Rosemary Carroll, she told Grant that she didn't understand why they didn't check the greenhouse, him and Dylan, right? Because Courtney had asked Dylan to check the greenhouse. She heard him, or sorry, she heard her on the phone with Dylan telling him to check the greenhouse. Dylan did not check the greenhouse. But five people... Okay, Five people, including SPD, failed to find Kurt in the greenhouse even during the day when, when they were searching for him to start with, right? There was a missing persons report on him. Grant, a private investigator, was looking for him. And they were actively looking. How come they couldn't find him? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Rosemary Carroll also noted that the suicide note was a forgery and done with a comparison letter found in Love's backpack, which was left at Carroll's house. It looked as if it was a practice sheet and it was a practice sheet practicing Kurt's handwriting. On top of the note, the top part of the suicide note Looks vastly different from the bottom part. Um, the top portion is also talking about music and his relationship with music and his love for music. And the bottom portion is what would resemble a typical suicide note. So, days after Cobain's death, there were copycat suicides from teens across the county across the country um, or even even going as far as around the world as far as I read to date there have been 68 known cases of the copycat related suicides that are related to Cobain's death Tom Grant would later uncover that everyone in Kurt's circle was dependent on Courtney she paid for drugs She paid for the rent. She paid for travel. She paid for everything and anything that was fucking needed. If you needed it, it came from Courtney. We see this with the relationship with Dylan and Callie and others. Grant was convinced that Callie knew something, but wasn't able to get any further cooperation from Love or Callie. And Grant was convinced that Love... Um, got a copy he convinced her to try and give him a copy of the coroner's report right and that she agreed and she would share that information with him and they scheduled a date right she never showed up for that she never showed up for that I would also like to mention that I found out that Callie is actually a ex-boyfriend, a longtime friend of Courtney Love, and an ex-boyfriend. So, like the group that they that they held or kept around them were made up of people that were dependent and knew Courtney. I couldn't see how he was able to trust anybody without them going back to Courtney on something. It's all very weird. It's all very strange. It's all very bizarre, and it just all doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. None of this adds up, and it's something that we're just... We're never going to get answers to. So we can talk and theorize all the live long day. But at the end of the day, Kurt Cobain died a very tragic death. Whether or not it's true that he committed suicide, whether or not it's true that there's a conspiracy around his death. The fact of the matter is, is that he is no longer with us so we were never able to see the great potential of this amazing musician we were never able to see the great potential that he could have been as far as a father to francis bean we were never able to see because he's no longer here whether he was suffering or whether he was trying to get a grasp on his reality um whatever demons he was fighting. It's just, it's just all really hard. You know, it's really hard to take in. But at the end, at the end of the day, he is no longer with us and his memory and legacy lives on through his music and through his art. And Kurt was definitely known as the voice of Gen X, that's that's who he was, the voice of Gen X, because a lot of people were able to relate to him and were were re- were able to relate to his music in a way that not many of us. The, those artists, they come around like we have. Chester Bennington we have Chris Cornell Mac Miller um there's a lot of really great musicians and out there that a lot of us end up relating to on some level and when they die tragically and pass it's, it's never easy it's not an easy pill to swallow um And I leave you with, if you are also struggling, um, please reach out. Please reach out. If you are struggling and you need help, reach out. It is better that you say something than say nothing at all. You know, you are not alone in this. You are never alone in this. But that brings us to a close of our very first part of the 27 Club. I was not expecting this episode to go as long as it did, but I won't keep you any any longer than this. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe, and follow. Do all the damn things. Um, my name is Elle. This is Murder on the 420 Express, leaving you with a higher train of thought.